Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace." All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Galatians chapter 5. We are reading verses 1 through 15, but to be honest, our footprint this morning goes all the way into chapter 6, verse 10. If you have a Bible, you may find it helpful to turn there. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we give thanks for your word, we ask that your spirit would come. You've promised that he will lead us into all truth. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, I attended a small conference for ministers outside of New York City. And at the time, I lived in Washington, D.C. And so we hopped on the train early one Monday morning. We arrived at Penn Station 
and we had a series of meetings through the afternoon. And then we were rendezvousing with a group of friends who had rented a car, and they were to drive us out of the city uh, to the retreat destination. When we met up with our friends, they said, now our car is right around the corner, so let's go grab some dinner, and then we will get the car, and we will go. And so we said, sure, sounds great. We rounded the corner after eating dinner, and we all stand around looking and asking, where's the car? It's a big city. We thought maybe we were on the wrong street, so we hustle around the block. And then the driver of the car, who was responsible for parking the car, recognizes that, no, this was the right street. And so we're asking ourselves, what could possibly have happened? It is a big city. Is the car gone? And then one of us got the bright idea of looking up at the parking signs that were just above our heads. There were three of them. The top sign was the largest. And in bold print, it laid out the hours that were, it was permissible to park. And as we read the sign, we were inside the hours. But then there was a second sign. The second sign was smaller and, of course, had a smaller font. And in that smaller font, it explained that there were no delivery trucks allowed. So there was a qualification to the first sign. And then we read further down on the signs. And the third sign, which was the smallest of them all and had the smallest print, gave one other qualification, a very important one on a Monday afternoon, that there was no parking for street cleaning. We suddenly understood what had happened because in the fine print, the third sign qualified the first sign, and we had completely parked illegally. And so our car was not there because it had been impounded by the New York authorities and was locked up and locked away, and we weren't going to find it. And in our society, we're accustomed to this kind of thing because we're accustomed to the fine print. Whether it's a policy or a contract or some kind of agreement, we're frequently not surprised when the fine print qualifies something that we think we have signed up for. And then we find that, no, that benefit actually doesn't belong to you because there is some fine print that qualifies it. In fact, we're so accustomed to this that for many people, they struggle not to import this same kind of cynicism into their relationship with God. And many people who hear the good news of God's grace, that God freely forgives sins, that he justifies us by faith, that it is his gift that he offers to us, they're anxiously waiting for the fine print. They think, no, there's going to be something. There's going to be some fine print in Scripture that qualifies this, that takes it away, that says, no, that's not exactly how it works. We oftentimes think that we're going to have to do something to supplement grace. That there has to be something on our part. But the apostle, as he's dealing with the struggles of this church that he planted there in Galatia, he explains that there's no fine print with the grace of God. That there's not some hidden qualification that you're going to find tucked back in the pages of Scripture that is going to qualify the grace of God. You see, certain Jewish Christians had come and they were explaining to these young Gentile converts that they needed to submit themselves to the Jewish law, especially to the food laws and to circumcision and to following the Jewish calendar. If they were going to be truly converted, they had to take on the yoke of Moses. 
And so, yes, these Jewish Christians who had come, they believed in Jesus, but there was, they were explaining there was something else that had to be done to finish off their justification, to stand right with God. And in chapter 5, Paul lays his invective. And where he heads is that this idea of obeying the law to complete your justification, that that was an effort to supplement the grace of God. And that when we supplement the grace of God, Paul goes to every extent in verses 4 and 5 to explain that we actually supplant Jesus Christ. That if we have these efforts, no matter how well-intentioned they are, no matter how religious they may seem, if we supplement the grace of God, we're actually supplanting Jesus. And he goes as far to say that we are severed from Christ. We've been cut off from him. And so it was a deep and serious problem. And then in very bold speech, Paul then wants to address, in verse 6, the relationship between a living faith, a faith that justifies us, and then the good works that we are also commanded to do. Follow with me here. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith alone saves the famous quip of the reformers. And then they finish that quip by saying, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. And this is what the apostle puts in bold print, that he wants us to understand this relationship, that faith exhibits itself and faith expresses itself through love. And therefore, a living faith will never be alone. A living faith will never be devoid of good works, but a living faith is what saves you. It is not your good works, it's not your love that saves you. And this morning, as we consider the role of good works, and we look at Galatians 5 and into chapter 6, it's a large footprint, but it's crucial for us to ask and answer this one question. What shape does faith working through love take in our lives? Because what we see here in chapter 5, rolling into chapter 6, is that the Apostle Paul is eager to express that love does not save us, that our good works don't save us, but he also wants to begin to fill out what it means to walk in works of love. So in verses 13 and 14, we find the answer, that faith exhibits and faith expresses itself through love as we serve one another. Follow with me in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is how Paul explains the life of love, that the life of love is oriented to the neighbor and giving ourselves to them to serve their interest. And he will then further explain and fill out this life of love in three ways. And I want you to follow with me. The first way that he builds out this life of love is that love bears fruit that enables community life. You find this in verses 16 through 25. But if you look in verse 22, you'll find a classic statement that many of you perhaps have committed to memory. It's the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He contrasts these fruits of the Spirit actually against a longer list of vices that are just ahead of it. And if you look at the vices and then you look at the fruits of the Spirit and you consider the situation going on there in Galatia, it suddenly makes sense as to what fruits are commended to us. If you look back up in verse, in verse 15, the apostle says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And I suggest to you that this was the primary problem in Galatia that the Jewish Christians were biting and devouring over their particularities and over their denial of the grace of God. and seeking to supplement it, they had supplanted Jesus. And then they were beginning to cut people off and not allow them to come to the communion table because they didn't agree with them precisely. And so they were biting and devouring. And what happens here in the fruits of the Spirit that are commended to the church as to what the life of Jesus inside of us accomplishes is that these fruits are specifically oriented not just to interior virtues about what it means to be a peaceful person in our soul, but actually these fruits are oriented to what enables and facilitates healthy relationships with others around us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these are oriented to the horizontal level of our lives as we live with one another. And this is what the fruit of the Spirit enables. This is what love looks like in action, is we actually take up these fruits that enable us to walk with one another. And of course, when Paul says that the whole law is fulfilled by loving our neighbor as ourself, he's not replacing the law. He's simply saying this is a summary of it. And friends, this is where the second table of the law, as we commonly call it, is still so significant for us. Because in obeying that second table of the law and considering its value, how it instructs us and guides us, it builds the kind of community that you and I want to live in. It builds a community where there's not murder and anger, where those don't run unfettered, wild, and free. It builds the community where we respect one another and our spouses, and we keep sexual purity. It builds a community where there's not coveting, where there's not stealing. It builds a community where there's honor to those who honor is due to. That that is the aim of the commandments of God. It is to develop this peaceful and whole and flourishing community that's grounded in love. Several months ago, I was talking with a young minister. He was serving on a committee with me inside the presbytery, and he had sent an email that we could say had a little bit of heat to it. And in the email, he was expressing some grave concern for the life of the committee and that the committee needed to change. There was a phrase inside of our book of church order uh, that he didn't believe we were applying. In the midst of that exchange, the conversation got more heated and more heated. And then several weeks later, we were having a follow-up conversation where he was expressing some um, bewilderment as to the fact that he had all of these severed relationships now. And so I asked him, how do you think that came to be? He then explained that the committee had no regard for the truth. If the committee had regard for the truth, then this division wouldn't exist. 
And friends, this is the way that we often do it in church. We take something small, something that is minimal, something not at the heart and core of the gospel, and we put that truth up against everything else, and we test everyone's orthodoxy by that little parsing of some little phrase. We proclaim our righteousness around that, and we begin to exclude and cut off. And then we wonder why we're alone. The fruit of the Spirit builds a peaceable community. It always directs us in that way. It doesn't call us to sacrifice the truth in any regard around the central principles of the gospel. You see the Apostle Paul go to great extent to defend the gospel, the truth of the gospel. But the more non-essential things, the smaller things, the things not of first importance, he calls us to be long-suffering, to be gentle, to be patient with one another. Because the fruit of the Spirit enables that kind of community. Now, the second way that he develops this idea of love is that love bears the burdens of others. If you follow along in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says that the duty of the Christian who seeks to walk in love with his neighbor is that when someone is caught up in a sin, when they've done something wrong, that it is our privilege and it is our duty and it is our calling and it is the command of God that we bear those burdens with them. Now what that means is we seek to restore them and he says with a spirit of gentleness. You could perhaps say the capital S spirit of gentleness as it's just been commended to us as a fruit of the spirit. And that in gentleness we're to seek restoration. The word restoration is an interesting one in the, in the original because it was commonly used in medical context when a limb was out of joint. To restore something meant to put it back in joint. And so when we are caught up in sin and we're caught up in wrongdoing and we find ourselves trapped there, it is our calling as loving brothers and sisters to gently, through the Spirit, seek restoration. We're, of course, to do so with a careful eye to ourselves. But Paul says this is an act of love, that we fulfill the law of Christ in bearing one another's burdens as then we walk with the person out of their struggle, out of the depth of where they have been caught and where they've been fixed and where they find their lives now convoluted and complicated, that we bear those burdens with them, that they move into health, that this is the life that a loving community takes up. And we bear one another's burdens because we know ultimately that in all of our own ugliness and all of our own complexity and all of our own sins, that Jesus is the one who bore burdens for us. And so we can step into the mess of someone else's lives and we can hear their confessions and we can hear their struggles. And as they come to our Lord Jesus repentantly, we walk with them that they be restored, that they know it's grace. Calvin wrote this. He says, most people seize on the faults of brethren as an occasion of insulting them. After writing his commentary on Galatians 6, 1 and 2, he then turned to pastoring 
And so where do we often get this wrong? And rather than taking the faults of people as an opportunity to bear their burdens, oftentimes we use it against them, that we turn it against them, that we try to build our own position, that we establish our own place on top of the faults and the failures of someone else. But this isn't what love does. It's not the direction of fulfilling the commands of God. We bear burdens with one another. Third piece of this love, though, is that it does good to everyone. If you move down to verses 9 and 10 in chapter 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, this is the broadest and most general word that Paul speaks almost in the entire epistle. Epistle is laser-focused and aimed at addressing certain issues that were dividing the church. But here he says that they are to do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. And you may ask, well, what exactly does it mean to do good? It seems that this command is mostly derived around showing mercy to those who are in need. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul repeats the instructions that he received from the apostles about the collection that he was going to take back to Jerusalem. That collection was being taken back to Jerusalem, not because things were going well there, but there was famine and there was great need. There was destitution and hunger in the church. And so Paul was bringing back a physical offering from the Gentile churches to show their oneness with the Jewish church and to demonstrate mercy and compassion for those who were deeply suffering and suffering most likely also due to their faith. And this is what love does. It shows mercy to those who are in need. It seems to give some priority to those who share our faith in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just stop there. It looks on the world and it sees need and it responds in compassion. And this is what a living faith does. It looks at the world compassionately and asks how we can be in keeping with the command to consider the needs of neighbor as we would want our needs considered. And friends, this is the question that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts as we walk about. How would I want to be treated if I were in that circumstance? How would I want to be treated if I were in that situation? And then what is in my power to do so? And what is my responsibility? But this is what love does. It bears fruit that enables community. It bears the burdens of others, walks with them in their struggles. And it does good to everyone. Living faith exhibits and expresses itself in this way. And when we consider all this, it undoubtedly raises to your mind, as it does to my own, incredible weaknesses that we all face and we all endure. As we hear the command to love one another, as we receive that, and then hear the shape of what it is we're to do in those loving deeds, the question that strikes us is how do we possibly pursue this? How do we sustain a life of faith working through love? Inside this passage, Apostle Paul gives us two motivations that I believe are essential and crucial for us to remember. 
first, we must remind ourselves of a future harvest. If you'll follow with me in chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. He says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. One of the great hindrances to a life filled with love and good works in the church is oftentimes fatigue. People start strong and seeking to do good, and then along that process, as they serve other people and give themselves selflessly, they find very little reward for it. In fact, oftentimes it's just the opposite. They're not thanked. It's not looked upon as a good thing as to what they did. And over time, the cynicism sets in, and we begin to ask whether it's worth it or not, that it doesn't seem to be worth it to do good. The Apostle Paul clearly understands the psychology that goes on, and he reminds us here that the harvest that will be reaped from the doing of good is not in the present, that it is in the future. That God knows all the activities and events of history, and he calls them all to mind. And that all of these great things will be rewarded on the day where he comes and renews everything. When new creation is installed and all the evil and the pollution of sin in our world is removed and scrubbed clean and creation is restored and made right. And so a life given to faith working through love is oriented to the future. That's where it finds its affirmation. It's not begging for it in the present It's not discouraged when the response is not right. It does good, not seeking the affirmation and the response. It does good. It shows mercy. It bears burdens. It bears fruit that enable community because simply it is our Lord Jesus who commands us to do so. And he will reward all of these things and there will be a great harvest. And so we have to press back against the fatigue. It will inevitably happen. And we have to have strong medicine that enables us to do so. Now, the second thing that's important for us as we consider what it is to sustain that life of faith working through love is that we must appropriate what is already ours in Christ. When you consider your lives and you look at the people around you and you hear the command to love, it can be paralyzing. Because immediately that what comes to mind are objections. Well, I would love that person if they fill in the blank. And the people that God calls you to love are those who are in your proximity. It's people you know, people you see, people you pass. It's one thing to love people at a great distance. It's another to take just around yourself, the people you regularly interact with and we have to ask the question what do we need and the answer comes back to us at the end of chapter 5 because what we find here is what we need we already have in Jesus Christ follow in verse 24 and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You'll note in the passage just above this that Paul's contrasted two things, the flesh and the spirit. 
the life of the flesh that is driven by self-indulgence and is also driven by self-concern. And then there's the life of the Spirit that's oriented to the community around us and bearing a peaceable community, being full of gentleness and self-control. And then he adds this very provocative phrase that those who belong to Christ, that is, those who have believed in Jesus and been baptized into his name, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The verb is past tense. There's no escaping it. What the apostle says is something, if you have believed in Christ, has happened to you. And what has happened is that you have been crucified. The flesh in you has been crucified. Its passions and desires have been crucified. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you feel that way today. Because that's not what this is about. This is about an objective event that happens to you when you believe in Jesus. He's saying that all those who belong to Christ... Have, been, have now shared a union with him where his death is our death now. And so the flesh and its passions and desires, those have been crucified. And they have been crucified so that we can then struggle against them. And we can then, through the life of sanctification, put them to death one by one. But your only hope of making progress your only hope of having any power and encouragement is because of what Christ has accomplished for you. That there has to be this divine gift given to you, the crucifixion of your flesh as you share in Jesus Christ. Yesterday, in the extreme humidity, I was given the task of yard work. It needed to happen. It had been two weeks, and my weeds were long. <laughs> And in the Colson household this year, it's been somewhat of a joke that almost every major appliance or human being has broken in some way. And so while I was out doing my yard work, I'd come to the end, and I was plugging in my blower to blow off the driveway. And I turned it on, and nothing happened. And even though it's not a big deal that your blower wouldn't work, I almost dropped to my knees. One more thing? Really? <laughs> One more thing. I turn it off. I go to, to figure out what to do in the garage, and I turn around and look, and it wasn't plugged in. <laughs> and this is how we often go about the Christian life. We fail to recognize that everything we, have, we need, we already have. It's there at our disposal. God has done it all. He's granted us everything, and yet we simply don't appropriate it. We don't take him up on it, what he offers to us. The power that I needed, everything is working and in order, and yet I was full of despair and discouragement because of the blower not coming on, and it was user <laughs> operator malfunction. And this is us. What we need, we already have. It's yours. And what we need to do is to dig down deep and not try harder, but we need to dig down deep in our faith, believing that what is said here, that the flesh with its passions and desires have been crucified, to believe that. And in the moment just where you don't believe it, you cry out to God and you say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to appropriate this. Help me to put this on. 
This life of love that you call me to, I find nearly impossible because my flesh feels strong. But in the power of your spirit, what you say is that the flesh and its passions and desires have been crucified. And I believe in Jesus. And so my flesh has been crucified, whether I feel that or not. Help me to experience it in some small measure. That's the kind of piety, that's the kind of interaction in prayer we want to be seeking. That we ask God to help us appropriate, to help us put it on. Otherwise, friends, we will find this to be insurmountable. But this is what God drafts for us. A life of love. Faith exhibiting and expressing itself in love. And he grants us everything we need to walk in that way. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we acknowledge all of our weaknesses. That we are those who find your commands good. We know they're true. And yet we struggle to apply. And so, Lord, we call on you for help. We ask that you remind us of a future harvest. We ask that you remind us that everything we need is ours in Jesus Christ that you have crucified our flesh, that you have set us free, that we walk in the Spirit. And so help us to live with a faith working through love. We ask that you help us where we're weak and that we know what it is to bear good fruit, that we know what it is to bear one another's burdens, and we know what it is to do good. Enable us to find the ways to fulfill that, practical ways in our daily lives. And Lord, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that you're always more ready to hear than we are to pray. And that in your grace, you always give more than either we desire or deserve. And so we come to you this morning and we cast our burdens and our anxieties upon you, our faithful God.